Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Hello, friends. Welcome back to The Blind Spot. Today, I am here with one of my colleagues from my Myers-Briggs typology community. Uh, Darren and I have both been training with Joel Marquette and Antonia Dodge, who are the founders of Personality Hackers. So if I've gotten any of my Enneagram fans to become excited about the Myers-Briggs system and how we can use Jungian psychology to get an even deeper understanding of type, I'll direct you to their podcast, which is Personality Hackers, and they also have a website with a wide variety of resources and trainings, and I really can't uh, celebrate these guys enough. I think that they are really uh, doing something very novel with the Myers-Briggs typology system and really using it for personal growth. And I think that many of the listeners of this podcast are also interested in using the Enneagram for personal growth. So the model that I'm coming to is that I really think there are three typologies that really matter when we're trying to understand what I call our cosmic location. Where are we on our growth journey at this point in time? And because we're all Enneagram fans, I sort of like to think about it in a law of three type of way. And when I think of the Myers-Briggs system, this is explaining our cognitive preferences, which is really how the head center or the mind is working. So this, to me, sort of overlies point six geographically on the Enneagram triangle. When I'm using the Enneagram typology system, for me, I like to line this up over the heart center. I think it's really helpful to understand the passions that are driving the Enneatype and what is the emotional background that's running it. Now, those of you who are Enneagram fans know that, of course, we focus on the head center and the fixations and the holy ideas, as well as the heart center with the passions and the virtues, as well as the body center. And as point nine is the head of the body center, in my mind, that's where I sort of map my study of the instinctual drives. So as I look at this triangle, three, six, nine, I love to see how these three different typology systems map onto each of the points, and I think gives us a much more complete picture of what's driving the underlying programming in an individual. So Darren is currently working at NYU and coaches aspiring entrepreneurs who are working in startup companies, and he really enjoys using type to help them really become their best selves and have success. And both Darren and I are familiar with this model that we've learned from Antonia and Joel called the HAT model, where the H stands for healing, the A stands for achievement, and the T stands for transcendence. So I think that we're both really excited about how we can use typology to better understand ourselves and then use these tools to also support the clients that we work with. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Darren, and I'd like to hear how you first discovered typology in general. How long have you been an enthusiast within the Myers-Briggs system, and when did you hear about the Enneagram, and what's been your journey and exploration with it so far? Because I know that we're going to spend some time today helping you unpack your understanding of your Enneagram type, as well as your instinctual drives. So do you want to introduce yourself and just flush that out a little bit, Darren? 
Absolutely, Carol. And uh, really appreciate you having me on. At some point, I took a personality test online. I think a friend showed it to me in college and, uh, you know, had a great experience with it. The The description really resonated. I did type out as INTP, which I've kept to this day. Um, but I didn't really start to dive in until much, much later when I was going through some really difficult career transitions. I think I was in the middle of founding my first company and I was feeling kind of lost. And so I was, I think, poking around Reddit in within my type and found personality hacker, uh, Joel and Antonia. And um, within the community that Joel and Antonia built, uh, there's a lot of talk about Enneagram and a lot of people uh, use both systems. And it was something that I never fully connected with and I had only read some articles about, but lately I'm finding that there's a lot more than I originally thought. And so I'm really grateful that you're gonna spend some time with me today digging into it. That's awesome. So um, you've done some typing tests online. And as I'm looking here at the scores that came back, um, you came back very high, highest on 0.5, actually, only one point lower on 0.9, and then one point lower than that on 0.2, and the same level as 0.3. So we're seeing a lot of uh, two and three energies as well as nine and five. So when I start to look at an original assessment that somebody has taken with an online Enneagram type test, I usually like to say that what we can know about this is that it tells you what you are not, but I don't think that any of the online tests are that great of telling you exactly what you are. So your lowest energies um, on your assessment were one, eight, seven, and four. So you're unlikely to be one of these four numbers. And now we can go ahead and start looking at the other ones that we have here. Have you read about these types, Darren? What's sort of your understanding? And are you gravitating towards what you are imagining you might be at this point? I mean, I, I resonate a lot with type five, mostly because of my understanding of the Myers-Briggs system. So I don't know if that's crowding my judgment of it. Um, I've had a few friends recently try to convince me that I'm a type nine. I haven't had the opportunity to read into that more. Um, so I'm pretty open. I'm pretty open to considering. Yeah. And when you say your experience in the type community, what is it that you've heard that was leading you to say, maybe I'm a five? Yeah. So in the Myers-Briggs type system, I'm an INTP. So uh, the cognitive function I lead with, it's called introverted thinking, which is very cerebral and logical. And I do find that that's sort of unconsciously how I approach the world uh, in a very digital way. So hearing descriptions of that within the Enneagram Type 5, I think resonated most with that description. But reading through the, I don't know, reading through the deeper explanations, it never really fully resonated with me what the uh, advice is for Type 5. Specifically, what wasn't resonating as much? Yeah, I think for me, it, the specific description that I had read described approaching things with your head as something to solve, as something to heal, as based on a core trauma. Whereas I, I actually really identify with meeting with my head and I don't find that it gets me into trouble as much as it, it is a core part of me that I identify with. Mm -hmm. um, and I do, yeah, I do think the core of myself is that, you know, I'm showing up as my best when I'm using the cerebral parts of me. So what does get you into trouble? Oh. <laughs> Should we go right there? <laughs> yeah. Well. Or do you want to warm up first? Should we come back to that one? We can dive in. Okay. Yeah. I think 
it definitely has a lot to do with people and relationships mm-hmm. where uh, not only I get into trouble, but I, I spend a lot of my headspace worrying about it and kind of being uncertain. And um, it's kind of consumes a lot of what goes on inside when there's something wrong. Yeah. Uh, and when things do go wrong, it's extremely painful. It takes a long time to heal. I feel like I need a lot of support in it. Uh, and it's just generally an area in life that I don't feel well equipped to handle. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to start naming some things that you're saying and just um, explaining what's coming up for me. So as I'm looking at the two scores that you are highest on, they're nine and five. And both of these are known to be withdrawn types. Whereas your other two highest energies were two and three, which twos are called a dependent type and threes are called an assertive type. Now, do you consider yourself to be an assertive person or do you think you're a little more laid back and, or do you kind of get yourself right out there in an engagement? I identify very much as laid back. However, I know a lot of my behavior is assertive because the way that my dad ran our household when I was younger. So I've learned a lot of behaviors that feel assertive and that others sort of mistake as my personality, but internally I feel very much laid back. Yeah. And what kind of behaviors might we see you engaging in that you would call assertive? Like what did you see your dad do that you've adopted on some level? Yeah. I do like to take leadership positions. Uh, I led a lot of clubs in school. I founded companies. I um, I'm very good at creating organizations, recruiting people, and kind of organizing people toward a common goal. Um, so when people see me sort of like step up into this position, they assume I'm uh, more of a dominant person than I than I really am. But it's at this point, it's a skill that I've learned, um, and I try to do it with you know as much tact as possible. And um, yeah, I, I'd say that's one of the most prominent behaviors. So people sound really important to you. It sounds like you really enjoy having people in your life and having connections and that you feel safer when healthy and positive relationships are a part of what's going on for you. That's exactly it. Yeah. And I I think finding leadership positions is a way for me to understand what my relationship is with these people under the guise of an organization. So it's a company. I really do understand this employer-employee relationship. Um, you know, within the context of a customer or a job to be done. I understand that dynamic. And from there, I can build personal relationships. But without that structure, it's really confusing for me to try and build that connection. Mm-hmm. And how was the pandemic for you? Who did you isolate? Did you have roommates or family or were you isolating alone? How was your experience of that? Yeah, I think the first six months of the pandemic uh, was Absolutely incredible. It, it, uh, as an introvert, it really allowed me to take the time I needed to think through things. And at the time at my job, I, it felt like a renaissance of creativity for me that first six months. Uh, unfortunately, that job, uh, that company went under because of the pandemic. And I was thrown into some you know, career chaos throughout the rest of it. But all in all, the, the isolation aspect was a big plus. Now, two or three years after the fact, it's it's kind of coming full circle in which I do feel more isolated. And uh, until I started this job, which was only a few months ago, I did I did feel like my social circle was really small and, and hard to expand. So mm-hmm. I am grateful to be back in the office um, half time. Yeah, yeah. 
So one of the things that I'm just naming that's coming up for me, and I'm going to stay pretty neutral around what your type may or may not be. And at the end of this interview, I think it's also really important that anything that I'm saying is just information for you to try on and kind of explore on your own. I think that we explore the Myers-Briggs typology in a very similar way, where you can't really tell somebody exactly what their best fit type is, because it's really an internal experience of, are these things resonating with me? And part of it is really exploring, oh, how do these energies show up in my life? And what am I observing that I'm doing? Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So when I hear you talk, yes, nine and five, both withdrawn types. So the introverted nature that you identify with would be compatible with both. Although I would say that it's even more common for fives to be introverts than nines. One of the differences is that fives are a rejection type and nines are an attachment type. Are you familiar what the differences between those two are? Like rejection oh. versus attachment? Uh, no. Okay. So for any listeners, we'll do a little bit of teaching here. There are three different triads in the Enneagram, and the rejection types are two, eight, and five. The attachment types are three, six, and nine. And the frustration types are one, four, and seven. So we'll go ahead and take the frustration types off the table. Those were really low on you. So um, while we all get frustrated, um, frustration is not the object relation that is probably driving your personality. So what we're sitting with here is, is it a rejection type or is it a attachment type? So most fives really, I would say that fives are the type that need people the least on the Enneagram. Um, I think that for fives, they just love diving into information. They can get down into wormholes. It's like, more information, more information, more information, which you may be identifying with. I'm going to go ahead and name that. We also use this model called trifix or tri-type. Um, have you heard this terminology before? Uh, yeah, recently. Okay. So what we're talking about here is that typically we have one point through which we access the body center, one point through which we access the head center, and one point through which we activate the heart center. So based off of your scores, it looks like you probably access the head center in a 0.5 stylistic way, that that's sort of what your structure will default to most comfortably. And you probably access your body center in a 0.9 way most reflexively. We're going to play around with the heart center a little bit and decide if it's 0.2 or 0.3 that may be in your trifix. But for right now, we'll stick with core type which is, are we talking about a type five or a type nine in this instance? So nines also, as withdrawn types, will enjoy alone time. Um, they really also have very active imaginations. Um, they can really get lost in the mind and have a lot of creativity. So nines are often reported to be one of the most creative types in the Enneagram. Whereas fives tend to be a little more data-driven, logical. In the Myers-Briggs world, we see a lot of INTJs that are 0.5. So can you sort of describe for our community, Darren, what's the difference between an INTP and an INTJ? How would you describe the difference in those two personalities? And what do you, why do you identify more as INTP? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, even though it's only one letter difference, the sort of underlying system 
uh, what are called cognitive functions are completely different. And so what goes on internally, the process is very different for INTPs versus INTJs. Um, I'd say the main difference is that INTJs are very future oriented and they're very focused on getting material results in the outer world. And there's sort of a bent toward action and into getting results. And they can be very precise with their actions because they're very conscious of how much energy they spend. So their thought process is all driven toward how can I make the biggest impact on the outer world with the least amount of energy. INTPs, on the other hand, are very focused on data for the sake of data, not necessarily for an outcome. They are after some kind of truth. And the thought is, if you can find the absolute truth of the matter, what follows then is the the most optimal answer. If you want to, you can apply it to the outer world. But really, it's truth-seeking for the sake of truth-seeking. Thank you. That was super helpful. Yeah. And I think that the Enneagram listeners can see why the 0.5 is a lot more likely to be an INTJ. Some of the things that you said that are classic about 0.5 is that they're very worried about conserving their energy. And that is classic in 0.5. In fact, the passion of 0.5 is avarice. And avarice does not necessarily mean that they're greedy. It's more like stingy, but they're stingy with what they're going to put out because there's this belief that there's not enough energy. Now, 0.5 has arrows in the Enneagram, both to 0.7 and to 0.8. And what this indicates is what you said, that when an INTJ does decide to get engaged, they move forward in a very outcome-driven way. And we don't talk as much about, you know, going to the low side or the high side. Most Enneagram teachers now believe that we can go to the low or the high side, of both um, integration points. But classically, in stress, the five becomes more scattered, like 0.7, and becomes much more focused, strong, energetic, like 0.8, when they're in a place of health. So while we can see the low side of both points in the 0.5, I think that what you're describing with INTJs using extroverted thinking as their auxiliary function What this means is that they're going to be driving very outcome-oriented. So once they get moving, they don't really want to be distracted by a whole bunch of other stuff on the side. And that's more like a point eight. You know, point eights, once they are a very practical type, once they get focused on the objective and the goal, they don't really enjoy a lot of other distraction. Whereas INTPs, the way that you describe it, it's looser. It's a little more amorphous. Um, Sometimes the point nine is actually called the philosopher of the universe because nines can just sort of, yeah, like wander around the mind and go into this crevice and that crevice. And that's why sometimes nines, we actually lose the engagement with nines. A nine can be physically present, but if they're not actually enjoying what's going on in their immediate surrounding, you'll see them kind of drift off and they're not really here even though their bodies are here. And this is often because there's such an amazing playground in the mind, which I think is also a characteristic of INTP, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also now nines are connected to the three and the six arrows. So nines absolutely can engage, motivate, drive towards a goal, but it's got a little, a slightly different energy to it. 
um, tends to be less laser focused on the task and the outcome. And nines will definitely keep more relationality. That whole relational aspect is more important to nines because they're an attachment type. And attachment types really want to move forward together. Our connections to people are really important to us. And while we can have a wide variety of frustrating habits that make it difficult to be in a relationship with an attachment type, some people actually describe attachment types as being attached to disconnect. So it's like, we want to be close. We want to be close. We want to be close. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, where am I in this whole thing? And then we kind of push away a little bit. We are like, we have to claim our space and who and what I am. But if that attachment gets jeopardized in any way, we tend to get anxiety and we want to kind of get back in there and secure the attachment again. So there can be a very interesting attachment dance where we're really seeking that click together. And then when everything is good, we'll sometimes I want to say almost like do something to sabotage it in some way, or we get lazy with it. And then it starts to drift and we really want to stop flexing for other people. But if that relationship gets jeopardized, we flex again just to make the relationship okay. How does that land with you when I kind of talk about the way attachment types do relationship? Yeah, I I resonate a lot with with that description. I think previously I described it as um, having a very small cup for uh, relationship satisfaction when it's empty it's it's the most important thing in the world but it fills so quickly once i uh, am able to fill it then i can my mind sort of wanders into more cerebral pursuits yeah absolutely i I think i can get a little bit complacent it's too steady of a situation yeah and nines also being of the body center they have a big issue with autonomy Um, They can be very stubborn. If you try to get a nine to do something that they don't want to do, they might be saying yes, but they might internally have a no. And if you, you know, they, but they won't just kind of flat out tell you because they stay pretty nice about it the whole time. And in the inside, they might be really angry or annoyed or irritated or frustrated, but they just kind of find these more roundabout ways of avoiding what it is that you may want, as opposed to just giving you a hard no. How does that land? Uh, I think that's absolutely right. It's very hard to get me to do anything that I don't want to do. Yeah. I'll keep the peace in the moment, but I'll probably either forget or figure out a way not to do it. Whereas fives are very different. Fives have a very easy access to no. I actually have a 0.5 friend And uh, he's married to one of my closest female friends. And when we're hanging out, um, I'm very honored because she only has like three friends that he'll even hang out with, period. Because, you know, fives, like we said, they're very, very conservative with their energy expenditure. So if a five even decides to spend time with you, that's like a huge love language thing. And sometimes I just like to mess with him because we'll be hanging out and I'll come up with all of these ideas like, hey, Sean, you should come on my podcast. No, you know, like I'll just have fun, like coming up with a million things that I know that Sean has no desire to do. And it's just flat out. No. And they don't care. That's kind of how rejection types will manifest is it's just kind of a quick, fast, hard, easy. No, not happening, at least in my experience. So it sounds like you're a little bit more diplomatic in the way that you give your nose. Mm, Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I I, I would agree with that. Okay, thank you. 
Okay, so what is your best and your worst quality? How would you talk about that? Ooh, wow. Wow, that's a question. Um, are you asking in terms of, you know, how would other people describe it or what do I think my best and worst qualities are? Let's go with what you think your best and worst qualities are. Oh, wow. That's a tough one. That's a really tough one. Um, I have a lot of access to what I think my worst qualities are uh, mm -hmm. because that's always on my mind. Yeah. Hmm. I do think one of one quality of mine that I've, I've spent a lot of time working on is, is around focus and getting into action, getting things, sort of getting out of a rut, so to speak, taking a risk. It's kind of a weird dichotomy because in my career, I make big career risks that are not moment to moment, but the moment to moment is very much, there's a lot of procrastination. I do a lot, I have a lot of coping behaviors. Um, I put things off to the last minute. And there's a sense of like, if only I could figure out how to bring some of my ideas to life, you know, so much could change in the world and and for me personally. Um, so I have a lot of, yeah, I, I kind of beat myself up a lot for for not doing more than I feel like I can. Another thing is, it's hard for me to say no to things and I take on a lot of responsibility. And I do it because I'm, I, there is some people pleasing behavior there. I want to feel close to people. I don't want to disappoint people. And it's also sort of upholding this internal image of myself of what I'm capable of. The result of that is then I overload myself at times and then I, I uh, don't have energy for anything. And I kind of don't show up as my best always because I'm running around fulfilling all these different obligations. So that was really helpful. As you learn more about point nine, the passion at point nine is sloth. And mm. when we talk about the word sloth, it's not necessarily that, you know, nines are lazy. It's the word that sloth comes from is actually acedia. I hope I'm saying that correctly. But that is a term that means self-forgetting. So nines tend to forget to prioritize what would be most important for their growth, development, and acceleration of their plans into the world. So many, many nines struggle with getting going. They can have real issues with inertia. It's like, I just need to kick it into gear. And when nines are healthy, they actually integrate to point three. So once a nine is got has got everything in alignment, nines can be incredibly productive and drive really important big changes. But this whole thing around procrastination is hard for nines. And so one of the things that the nine needs to do is to focus on engagement. So it's very easy for nines to get a little lazy internally in terms of what is my next step that I need to do in order to move forward. And so they can get a little bit stuck. And we talk about nines going to point six at times of stress. And it's the anxiety of point six, which is characterized by fear and doubt, that sometimes provides the energy for the nine to get out of that place of stuckness and to actually start moving forward, engage their superpowers, because once nines are on their way, there's almost nothing they can't achieve. They can be incredibly powerful. Um, Barack Obama is a point nine. 
So just to get a sense of a very healthy manifestation of a 0.9, there was that quiet strength that Barack Obama would portray. And the other thing I want to name is just even noticing the pace of your speech. Um, It has a slower cadence. There's some more thoughtfulness to it. Um, It can sometimes maybe take a little bit longer for a nine to organize their thought around something. But then once it's there, it's very, very clear. I have some friends who are nines that I absolutely love, but because I lead with extroverted intuition and I'm a three and I move really, really fast in my brain, I can tell that sometimes it's just too much information all at once for my 0.9 friends. I've been told it can feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. So when I'm talking to one of my 0.9 friends, I will often just say, okay, give me three minutes. I want you to hear this. And then let's connect in like 48 hours. And the way that I describe it is that it goes inside and I think it goes into their belly center because nines are the center of the belly center and it like metabolizes. It's like they do something with the information that I just gave them. And it may take like a day or two or a week or I don't know how long, but then all of a sudden they can just come out with some incredibly insightful wisdom that I could have probably never come up with on my own. And I'm just like, wow. So I really love just like depositing thoughts inside of my 0.9 friends and then coming back around. Now, sometimes nines forget to think about what you ask them to think about, because if they don't really care or they're not that interested, it might just float away. And then when you come back later, they're like, oh, crap. I didn't think about that. And there's a little bit of anxiety because they want to please you and they feel bad that they didn't really think about it at all and they'll do their best. But when they actually are contemplating it, taking it seriously, I I just think they're one of the wisest points on the wheel. How's all that landing with you? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very generous description, but I I do feel the need to metabolize thoughts and and, um, I, I find my best... You know, when I'm at my best is when I've had time to really think about something deeply and use this like really intense focus that I have uh, to fully think through a thought. And I think the way that I handle uh, you and I in the Myers-Briggs system are opposites in terms of introvert and extrovert, meaning we have the same functions, but swapped. For you, speaking helps the thinking, extroverting it helps kind of lay it all out. And for me, I, I do that internally. I like to to go inside and organize it and then find the best path and sort of what I choose to then construct it into a sentence. You know, I really only want to pick one because that's the part that takes a lot of energy out of me is, is translating it to the outer world. So I want to find the best one first before I offer it to you. Thank you. And what's your best quality? We'd heard about some of the things <laughs> that you aren't as excited about. What do you really like about yourself? What are you happy that you have the gift to do? Yeah. You know, I'm. it's so hard not to be cliche and just describe my own type uh, in, within one of these systems. I think one of the ways recently that I've found is helpful for people, my ability to take in large amounts of information, structure it, and sort of create focus for other people. And it's kind of through this organization of information that helps people figure out what the leverage point is for them. And this is something I do in my job as well is sort of understand, 
entrepreneurs and where they are in their journey and not flood them with all the information in the world, but help them find what is the right learning that you need to do at this moment to unlock where you are in your journey. So I guess it's, yeah, sort of helping people navigate information. Yeah. Well, and that's probably where this five fix is showing up in your type. If you are a nine is that you really do like data. You really do like information. You really do like synthesizing it and can really do well when there's a large uh, complexity element to it. So thank you. Okay. What is your biggest pet peeve? Oh, pet peeve. That's a tough one. I mean, I'm pretty tolerant generally of uh, of people and, and behaviors. I'm just going to name that's a nine characteristic. Fives <laughs> are not that tolerant of people and behaviors. That's why they're a rejection type. Ah, so, okay. So yeah. tolerance could be one of your gifts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are things that I frown upon internally. Like what? One, incompetence or people uh-huh. who try to speak outside of their area of expertise with a lot of confidence. I don't, you know, that's something that I I don't think does anyone any service, but I recognize it as, you know, sort of an ego exercise. Um, so I'm really cognizant of, of, you know, when there's people who are saying something, um, if it's going, if, if I feel other people are going to take that information and do something with it, I might intervene, but for the most part, I sort of cringe and recognize it as a, as an exercise in, in ego on that person's part. I also really don't like displays of power against people that I care about. That's probably the only time I would ever get uh, physically violent with anyone is if somebody tried to harm somebody that I really care about in some way. Other than that, I'm, you know, passive to a fault, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I loved hearing you describe that because the two wings at point nine are eight and one. And I heard you describing the energies of both. The eight wing is that wing that's like protective. You know, it really wants to, yeah. And you notice that you said people I really care about. So sometimes we call eights, we talk about them as being upset about injustice, but eights really only care about it if it's affecting their tribe. There's a real sense of like, these are my people. And if you hurt my people, like that's getting you like closer into me and they can be incredibly protective of the people that they identify with. So I was sensing a little bit of your eight wing energy there. And the one wing is sometimes called the perfectionist or the improver or the reformer. And they really want competency and they really want people to be accurate. And I could hear when you were describing people who talk about things that they don't actually know what they're talking about, that really sounded like something that the one wing would not enjoy. And when I was looking on the test you took at the energies of eight and one, they were actually just about equal. So um, you may have to do a little bit more exploration to determine whether you have an eight wing or a one wing, because I could really hear both things coming up, which, you know, some people are really balanced. They can pull on the energies of both wings, whereas some people have a much stronger preference for one wing or the other. We talk about it sort of like handedness. You know, most people tend to have a wing that they will default to and are most comfortable in. And that other energy is still there. It just tends not to be developed until later in life 
or it is just for some reason, there's some shadow elements around it. But it sounds like you connect with both energies around nine pretty effectively. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, something that is coming up for me in this session is there, it seems like there's this dichotomy of like head and heart. And something that I feel like I'm going through a transition in life now that is I'm ping ponging between these two parts of me. So I think this is a, I think this is a very accurate representation of, of where I am right now is, is between this like head and heart focus in my life. Yeah. Thank you. So what was the most stressful time in your life and why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The last, uh, the last five years were really, really difficult for me. And I'm just going to orient. I think you're 29. Is that right, Darren? I just turned 32 days ago. You just turned 32 days ago. Happy birthday. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So you're about, let's just say one third through your life. So you will have good times and bad times in front of you. But yeah, what's been the most stressful? Why was 25 to 30 so hard? Yeah, uh, I'd say it was all around. It was all centered around career. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had sort of set out to, um, you know, live this, live up to the expectation that was set on me by my parents who were immigrants and do well in school, get a good job. And um, when I started my first company at uh, right out of school, this was kind of my shot to, to fulfill that mandate and to sort of make my parents proud, make all of my ancestors who had struggled, you know, in uh, some obscure village uh, for me to have this opportunity. And I guess to put it shortly, the five years has, had been a series of very close calls on finally, you know, fulfilling that obligation and making it big and make, and creating a successful company and then facing setbacks and having to, you know, contend with deconstructing this identity of, of being a, a founder and then um, working for other people's startups, all while having sacrificed a lot of my relationships and also, you know, a lot in my financial health and in my physical health and my mental health. And what I told myself the whole time was, it'll all be worth it once I make it. This is all part of the story. If I keep taking out loans on myself, it's going to pay back at some point. And probably the lowest point in the middle of that journey was realizing that that point was was beyond what I could uh, what I could build with what I had. And I had to completely reset all of my expectations about myself. And I'd say I'm just on the other side of a period where I'm starting to finally rebuild myself piece by piece. And um, it's it's a really, it was a really open time for a while. And, and now I'm starting to feel the seeds of, of a new identity. Yeah. Thank you, Darren. Thanks for sharing all of that. I think that this is also giving me some insight into your instinctual stack. So everything you're talking about with work and your dedication to your family and with wanting to build something and also the way that these instinctual drives really caused you to forget to take care of yourself in some way. So the more I'm hearing you talk and the more that we're engaging, the, the more comfortable I'm actually feeling with having you check out being a point nine. And the instinctual energies that you're talking about right here are really the self-preservation and the social energies. So these seem to be the ones that are most driving your internal programming. So when I hear you talk about 
building these companies and you know getting financial security and really making your family who came from an immigrant background proud and this talk of ancestors you know i think you can play around with a little bit of whether self-preservation or social is your dominant instinct but i think that these two are definitely at play the most when i think about the nine often there are certain numbing behaviors we talk about self-preservation nines as really liking some comfort and routine nines can sometimes find food to be self-soothing or television to be self-soothing or you know things that are are very like comfortable for their bodies and their surroundings do you connect with any of that absolutely i do yes all of it yeah i um you know if i wasn't at my computer working then i'm on the couch scrolling on my phone and uh, just finding creature comforts and uh I, you know if i didn't watch myself i could allow myself to do that for days yeah uh, no end in sight so absolutely that that resonates okay what about the best time in your life what's been the best time in your life so far ooh well i'm hoping that's to come i'm hoping that's on its way what are you hoping for what would uh what would you know as you're envisioning hmm. your life in its best form what would that include yeah i think it would include having healthy and rewarding relationships as top of mind at the moment and are we talking about romantic family based or friend based relationships um i'd say all of them all of them yeah yeah I've made quite a bit of progress recently on friends mm-hmm. and finding people that uh, are supportive, um, and that's been incredibly rewarding. And I'm still adjusting to uh, to what that's being like. Because it sounds like you've prioritized work over friendships historically. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so that's self pres social. Just so that we can name that, the mm-hmm. self pres is um, this need to have financial security this need to build, this need to have this foundation. So I'm feeling pretty confident that your instinctual stack may be self-pres, social, sexual, blind, especially even with the way that you're talking about it, that your work and becoming established in work was one of the things that was driving you almost to the point of sacrificing these relationships you keep talking about. And they're all the relationships. There isn't a primary fixation on a sexual partner. It really seems like it's relationships in general. And yet what I'm hearing you say is that now having an intimate partner is coming on board as a priority, but it wasn't something that was top of mind five years ago when you were in this startup drive. Is that true? Um, what I will say is at the time I had a, I had a long-term relationship that ended and the fallout of that was a big factor in why it was a, a difficult time for me. And I never had the opportunity to process it. And so I carried that through the entire five years. Mm, yeah. If you don't mind sharing, what was hard about the ending of that relationship? What did you learn through that relationship? Um, at the time, uh, so it had happened right at a really critical point in the company's timeline. and. I guess just not having someone in my corner was was really jarring at the time. 
um, right after we had broken up, um, I was, I woke up one day, I had vertigo, I had a bunch of symptoms that I, I couldn't identify. So I went to the ER and ended up getting diagnosed with testicular cancer and went through a period of, of seeing doctors and sort of struggling with, you know, would I or would not I have a future uh, as a father, which is something that I have always wanted. Um, ended up getting a surgery. And that was very difficult to do alone right after having somebody with me, you know, through everything uh, for years. And so there, I guess there was this intense feeling of abandonment of when, right when I need people the most, they, they let me down. And that pattern repeated itself a few times throughout the five years. But that was the, that was the first and most difficult um, low point of, of, of those five years. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think you're really speaking to the experience of an attachment type. I know that as a point three, um, having these people around me can be really important. And this feeling of abandonment is even a bigger priority of heart-centered types. And yet for both sixes and nines, it's really about those connections that we have with people that drives so much of the structure. And so as I'm hearing you speak, there's just even more of that that sounds like nine as opposed to five. And the reason that five is coming up so high for you, and in fact, your test actually said that you were a five. And this is why I think it's so important to have a typing interview where somebody can really start pulling out the energies that we're seeing and seeing how those are playing with each other. Because I feel pretty confident that we're seeing a whole bunch of point nine structure emerging here. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the two and the three so that we can have a sense of which is the heart point that you most identify with. So when your relationship with your significant other was ending, and as you notice, even the relationships you have with friends and family right now, do you, the, the point two is called the helper or the giver, and the point three is sometimes called the achiever or the performer. So do you feel like you're excessively generous with friends, lovers, family? And if you are, why do you do that? Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I do resonate with that. Um, I think I do that. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, I want to help. And if I, if I feel like I can, then I, I will. Mm -hmm. And, um, maybe it's because I know how difficult it is to struggle with needing help and not knowing how to ask for it. Mm, yeah. Maybe there's some really deep seated want for, for help, but an inability of knowing how to ask for it. Mm -hmm. So maybe I project that on others and I, I try to help where I see that they might need help uh, in a very generous way, however that manifests. How in is case. it for you if you see, do you often have thoughts that like, oh, this person needs X, Y, Z. Do people ever tell you that you're like a little pushy with your help? Like you're going into spaces and doing things that they don't actually want you to do, but you think it's important for them? Uh, I, I consciously try to be as conservative as possible to not be that. I think my dad emulated that a lot. So I think I brought the same energy, but I saw how destructive and invasive it can be if if it's not welcome or if it's not warranted. So I, I 
consciously tried to be subtle about it. But I give an example of how your dad would do that in a way you found was unpleasant. Um, let's see. Um, every year he has the family, uh, his extended family, his siblings and, and their children come to our house for Thanksgiving dinner. And he insists on uh, cooking everything all the time. And so it becomes, uh, it's kind of a, it becomes kind of a performance where pe- everyone needs to come sit at the table at the exact time. You know, it's not really about the the family, the connection side of it, but it's kind of about the presentation of the food, the kind of being there. And, you know, when people want to help, if they want to bring food or they want to help in the kitchen, he's does not let them because it's going to ruin his, uh, his menu or, or it's not going to, the flavors don't match or whatever it is. So, you know, while he he does provide this beautiful family and brings everyone together every year, it's also kind of uh, uh, really structuring the time that you have together and and a little bit. Yeah, it's it's harder to I've always found it hard to connect with my family because I'm just cooking every holiday for many hours. That's so funny. I just uh, was in a stream about how holidays can be hard for me as well, because I get wrapped into doing a performative aspect of the holiday meal that takes up so much of my time and energy. And I think that on holidays, even though I'm a three, I like to go to nine and just relax and chill and prefer it not be as much of a performance. Yeah, that's really important. Well, when I'm hearing you talk about your dad, it sounds like he may have some one energy, that sort of perfectionistic quality. Like I need it to be just this way even if my rigidity is irritating the other family members. Hmm. Yeah, I do yeah. see it. Yeah, and there's, a, there's sort of an attitude of, I'm doing this, so like you should be grateful for whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so that's definitely maybe one with two-wing energy or two with one-wing energy. So that's just interesting to look at. And I think that if we have a parent that's showing up with a lot of a certain type of energy, we end up forming object relations to that. And it sort of gets integrated into a part of our psyche. But I just want to highlight that this is a big difference between nines and twos. Those can be types that are sometimes confused, but twos really repress their needs. It's like, I don't have any needs at all. And I know what your needs are. And I'm here to meet them. Like Mm -hmm. I get my sense of worth and value from being essential for you. And if I'm not essential for you, then I feel really uh, destabilized. Whereas I would say a three with a two wing, a nine that has a two fix, we will help because we enjoy support. We know how wonderful it is when people support us. But if we think people have got it, we're just as happy to kind of sit back let them do their thing. And we don't necessarily have the same need to insert ourselves. Does that resonate? Hmm. That's fascinating. I can can see parts of both. I mean, I do find the needing to be needed aspect of it. There's a grain of truth in that. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a a level of, uh, there is some level of that that I need. But once that's met, then I feel like I'm more of the other side of it, where it's I'll interfere if you need it. But in the times that I don't feel like I'm needed, I find myself chasing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It gives you some of your stability and security. Yeah. Um, And then let's talk about the three energy. I definitely am hearing three energy when you're talking about your story. Um, The three really likes to 
be successful, to meet metrics, to, you know, have something to show for what it is that I'm doing. I'm also hearing that you want to write a book. Is that a part of your journey that you're moving towards? Yeah, a book or a blog that I keep up or just uh, continue to put my ideas out into the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I just think that this whole role that you've had with startups and, you know, having been a founder, that there is that longing to also be successful in some way in the world. And that's a very point three type energy. Yeah. I mean, as you as you're talking it out loud, I, I think it's a it's an inherited goal. And I think it's there's a deadline to it. And it's kind of like once I make it, I feel like I can't wait to be done with it. And it's the financial stability that I'm looking for. It's the freedom that comes with that. Um, it's it's the it's the stature of having proven myself, um, you know, in the outer world and then being able to use that to go back and teach others and use that to open doors to, to be more helpful to people. Um, and I, I don't see myself as, as one who, once I achieve something, I can, I'm not satisfied and continue wanting to achieve. I think it's, it's, um, it's a milestone on the way to a, a larger goal. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk a little bit about the sexual instinct. When we talk about the sexual instinct in type nine, there can be this longing for merging, for fusion, for like real closeness with a romantic partner. Have you experienced a sense of that? Or when you've been in relationships, do you feel like you'll flex to be how your partner is or to kind of follow their agenda? Or what's it like for you in partnership? And what makes a romantic partnership particularly juicy for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I will say it's been it's been quite a while since I've been in a romantic relationship. So I don't have very many data points, but um, I do think I bring a little bit of that merging intention at the very beginning of relationships. I find myself, you know, in the beginning, very curious about my partner and wanting to learn everything about them. And that's it. there's there's an intensity to it. And that kind of fades over time. And then I think there's kind of a, you know, it's almost like a switch turns off at at a certain point where the cup is filled and and then I find myself more diving into my other pursuits a little bit more. Which totally makes sense in somebody who's sexual blind. So one of the things that we say, and I'm also sexual blind, is that it's not that we don't have a sexual instinct. Of course, when that activates and we're looking for a partnership and we're you know out with our display being like, hey, pick me, let's go out, you know, let's have that connection, it will activate. And yet as the partnership goes on, we see the dominant instincts start to activate again. So for a self-pressed social person, these are going to be responsibilities to work, maybe like my colleagues, maybe my family, and the partner can be put on a back burner, I would say, while the other instinctual drives activate more. So I think one of the important things for sexual blind individuals is to make sure that we are checking in on the juice of that romantic partnership. And once we get into that coasting, stable, oh, I don't have to think about this anymore zone because it's lost that novelty, which every relationship does over the first 18 to 24 months, especially if you're living together, is to not get lost in autopilot and to make sure that you're continuing to reinvest in the relationship. So many people think that sixes and nines make up 
a larger part of the population and maybe threes that like attachment types are very common. And I think that it can be really easy for the attachment types to form that initial attachment. And if you're sexual blind, not go back and reinvest in it. And another one of the teachers that I'm a big fan of is Esther Perel. And she's written a book called Mating in Captivity, How to Maintain Passion and Romance in a Long-Term Committed Relationship. And I think that one of the reasons that this book was so successful, and she is a TED Talk that really launched her career is because I think that so much of the world is sexual blind and we have been focused on work and family and having this foundation. And I think that as we start to do our blind spot work, we can practice remembering how important it is to bring in that juice and that spark and that chemistry back into whatever romantic partnership that we happen to be in. That resonates a lot. Yeah. I haven't thought about it that way. I always thought I was a sexual dominant, but it makes sense now the sort of dichotomy of it and the intensity of it in the way that you describe. That and tell sense. me why you thought you were sexual dominant. Um, I do always prefer one-to-one relationships more than other types. I find that I'm not comfortable in groups unless I have a really strong one-on-one connection with everyone in the group. And I find it difficult in group settings to keep up and to track, but in one-on-one settings, I feel very comfortable. Yeah. And that I think that's so great that you're talking about that because one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is that personally, I don't really like this term one-to-one. I know that we use it in the business setting a lot because it can be hard to talk about the sexual instinct um, with regular mainstream people. And if you're like, oh, you're sexual dominant, that can sound a little weird or creepy if you don't really know what we're talking about. But I think more when we're talking about that connection, of course, the sexual instinct can manifest as a certain intensity and drive and creativity. And there's this like leaning in energy of just like a one-on-one connection. But at the same time, it can be a social connection, but it has less heat to it. It's more we're in connection right now in a one-to-one way but there's not that sexual energy attached to it. So I would say specifically with introverts, I think that introverts in general feel a little overwhelmed by large amounts of group dynamics. And so just because you're an introvert doesn't mean that you're sexual dominant. Most introverts are more comfortable in one-on-one interactions as opposed to navigating a big group. So I think that that's an important nuance to bring in that it's almost an energy that you feel in the body. Like when you're talking about the sexual instinct, there's something about competition, guarding, boundaries. Like it has this sense of like, if I'm in connection with you, I don't want anybody else infiltrating. It's kind of like a mine energy, like back off. Like this is my person. I'm connected right here. It's very territorial feeling. Whereas if it's a social instinctual connection, You may be vibing, having a conversation, and let's say you're in a group where there are other people that you also feel a certain level of intimacy with. The social connection is really more of a heart-centered connection, and it's you might be okay with like, oh, so-and-so's here. Okay, now the three of us are talking, and oh, so-and-so just came over. Now it's the four of us. And of course, the more introverted we are, the bigger the group becomes, the more um, energy there is to navigate But I think that this is one way that we can start to differentiate between that 
social instinctual energy and, and sexual instinctual energy. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of that. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. And this is all still being worked out, you know, where um, there's a lot of different teachers out there uh, teaching about the instincts. I'm trying to get as many of them as I can onto this podcast. And I think that these types of interviews are really helpful both to see how we start to work with these different energies and find our way to type, as well as seeing how this is showing up in our narrative in terms of our instinctual stack. So I just want to express a lot of gratitude for sharing your story, Darren. And I hope that you got something out of this inquiry today. Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much and uh, you are always so generous with your time and, and your energy. And I appreciate it. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Darren. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation. consultation.